God's word this morning, we're reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, from verse 1 through 17. As a prisoner in the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of calling you, of, of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, hearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the, through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does the ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 14. Then we, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in the love, we will in all things grow up unto him who is in head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligaments, grows, grows and builds itself up in the love as each part does its work. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of thinking. May the Lord bless this reading to our hearts this morning. The Lord has spoken, the Lord still speaks. May he speak to us today. <clears throat> when a child is born, parents have two real goals for their children. First, that their child will grow up to be so absurdly gifted at either sports or music that they'll make millions and the parents can retire. The other goal is that the child will grow up to be physically, mentally, socially, and emotionally mature adult, right? We don't want to be changing our teenagers' diapers. We don't like to see a 40-year-old acting like a 5-year-old. Last summer, Michael Jackson died, and sorry if this picture frightens you. Um, think what you will about Michael Jackson. It's 
pretty much universally acknowledged that what he was doing with his untold millions of dollars was trying to create a space for himself in which he could be a child, relive or recapture his childhood. He was 50 years old when he died. And there's something tragic and dysfunctional about an adult who is stuck in childhood. We want our children to be whole, mature, healthy, functioning. And as we try to raise them accordingly, we're not imposing something alien or unnatural on them. Mature adulthood is the natural end point of infancy and childhood. And yet it doesn't happen without intention. And so parents guide and push and lead and nurture a child into mature adulthood. There's two concepts that we try to teach our children, two basic things that we try to instill in our kids as we go about the business of raising them into mature adults. And you parents, if you look at how you are raising or have raised your kids, you will recognize these two things. And the more that our children get a hold of and live these two things, the more they will be maturing. And these same two things, and we'll get to them in a moment, these same two things are the necessary elements of our spiritually maturing as well, both individually and as a whole church. And Paul lays them out in these, this passage that we've just read from Ephesians chapter 4. You remember from last week, I hope, that uh, in the latter part of chapter 3, that God's goal for the church and for us is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That is the end towards which Paul is praying, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I pray that you will be strengthened with power in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that, together with the saints, you might have the strength to experience and grasp the love of Christ, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the goal towards which God is moving us, individually and as a church filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians that God would give them strength and set off the chain that comes to completion in their being filled with the fullness of God. That's his goal for us, God's goal for us. That's the destination he's moving us toward. Well, in the passage today, the very next passage, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, Paul again writes about attaining fullness. And this time, he couches it in terms of maturity. In other words, one way to look at this process by which God first saves us and then moves us toward fullness in him is to liken that to a body that grows from infancy to full adult maturity. So from verse 12, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Rather, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So a church that has attained the fullness of Christ is a mature and fully formed church. And a Christian who has attained fullness in Christ is a mature and fully formed Christian. And this maturing is something that God does. It's entirely dependent on his power at work in us, the reality of Christ in our lives. Okay, that's what we learned last week. 
but it is also something that we are responsible for. Uh, Bill, are Bill and Annette here this morning? They're not. Bill and Annette are farmers. And they are, on one hand, entirely dependent on things beyond their control as farmers. Dependent on God, dependent on his sending rain and sun in its season, uh, the, the length of the growing season. They don't have any power at all to cause even a single seed to germinate. They're entirely dependent on things beyond their control. But they're also entirely responsible for the harvest at the end of the season. Responsible to plow and plant and keep fertilized and harvest at the right time. Entirely dependent on God and entirely responsible for the growth of the harvest on their own farm. And the work of God in maturing each of us and all of us together is the same. We do it. God does it. My growth into maturity will stall if I do nothing. And yet, when I reach full maturity, I will take no credit for it because it will all be God's doing. And that's true for us as a church as well. God calls us to actively participate in his program of bringing his church from new birth to full maturity and fullness in him. So, the text. See how Paul starts chapter 4. This is a turning point in the book of Ephesians. As Paul turns from what God has done now to what we do. Verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, up until now, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul has written about what God has done in Christ. He has forgiven our sins. He has rescued us from death and wrath and judgment. He has formed a new people of God. And God is going to fill his church with himself, with his own fullness. So chapter 3 ends, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. Amen. And then Paul says right away, okay, now, all of this, chapter 1, 2, and 3, this is more than just good subject material for songs and theological books. This has implications for life. You've received this calling to be God's own child, to be a part of God's people. Now, let's get into how to live this out. And for the rest of Ephesians, that's exactly what Paul does. He talks about how to live out of our calling. He makes a shift here from doctrine to practice, from what to know to what to do because of what we know, from truth to life lived according to that truth. Walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. So, how do we walk out this calling? Or to use the imagery of today's passage, how do we grow into maturity? Well, we do it by learning and putting into practice the same two things that we try to instill in our children as they grow into maturity. First, we grow into maturity as we express our unity by love. We express our unity by love. One of the two basic rules we want to get our children, or want to get into our children, is this. Love your family. Learn to get along. Treat each other with kindness and respect. Doesn't mean you never disagree. It doesn't mean you don't argue. But underneath it all, make sure that you treat each other with respect and with dignity and honor. This is what it means to be in a family. And if there is undue anger or selfishness 
or name-calling or just plain meanness, what do we say? We say, hey, we're a family. We don't do that. And to the extent that a child understands and learns to treat the family members with respect and with love, they mature. In fact, the mark of immaturity is self-focus and selfishness. Well, the same is true in the church. The New Testament has an extraordinary amount to say about how we are to relate to one another. Jesus' command in John 13 to love one another. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and their description of what it means to be a body of Christ, needing each other, belonging to each other, supporting each other. And the rest of the New Testament is just riddled with instructions. On the positive side about forgiveness and sexual purity and generosity and hospitality and praying for each other. And on the negative side about gossip and greed and arrogance and criticism. All of it having to do with how we relate to one another as Christians. And especially Christians in the congregation together. The New Testament is full of this. And Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 are all about this. Now, Paul uses four terms here as he describes how we are to love one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. Humility is obviously essential to living out unity in love. John Stott says the greatest single secret of concord is humility. What is humility? It's just an accurate self-perception. Not thinking of ourselves more highly, nor, I would say, more lowly than we ought. As Romans 12 says, it's not false modesty, it's just knowing who we are. And the opposite of humility isn't pride. The opposite of humility is self-focus. And it's when we focus on ourselves that we cause disunity. When we focus on our wants and preferences, our opinions, our wounded self-pride, our need to be right, our need to be liked or affirmed. Humility allows us to focus on others, to listen to others, to serve others. Humility allows us, when we have been unjustly wounded or insulted or misrepresented, humility allows us to say, I don't need to vindicate myself. Humility allows us to risk asking for help when we need it, when the burden is getting too heavy. Now, who modeled humility supremely? Jesus. Philippians 2, that though, though Jesus was God, he humbled himself, literally made himself nothing, emptied himself, born as a baby, lived to be a servant, and even died the humiliating death on the cross. I mean, he set aside his divine rights for our own good and for our interests. And that is humility. I heard someone say not long ago that all human sin and dysfunction falls under one of three categories. Me first, I want, and poor me. All of these are sin. All of these are a breeding ground for disunity. And for all of these, humility is the antidote. Humility says, it's not about me. So expressing our unity by love requires humility. We can't do it without humility. And it requires gentleness. The same word that's sometimes translated meekness. Uh, in Greek literature, and Paul wrote Ephesians in Greek, 
In Greek usage, this word was used of domesticated animals. Not tame, but power restrained, controlled. Think of the war horse, powerful and ready for battle, but submitting his power to the direction of his master. Again, John Stott says, Gentleness is the quality of the strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. And here too, we see Jesus bound before Pilate, then later nailed to a cross. I mean, was power ever restrained to a greater degree than this? This is gentleness. And it's, it's just another facet of humility. Gentleness is what stops me from airing my opinion at every opportunity or lording it over somebody or using theology as a club. Gentleness, again, keeps me from needing to vindicate myself or to defend myself. Gentleness means tenderness, kindness, encouragement, care. And the last two terms are patience and bearing with one another. Now, these imply, of course, that there will be a need for patience. That there are weaknesses and issues and differences of opinion and preference that need to be put up with. Patience and bearing with one another will mean that we are a community of grace. That we don't point out each other's flaws or gossip about each other's weaknesses. Patience and forbearance don't give criticism or anger a place. And if you are thinking of things in other people right now that bother you, and you think, you know what? Yeah, I should be more patient about that and not let it bother me. Guess what? Somebody is thinking of you right now and thinking, you know what? They bug me, but I guess I can put up with it. And somebody's thinking of me right now. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Paul says, let these things characterize you as the people of God. This is what it looks like to walk according to your calling. This is the measure of whether you are a grown-up or a juvenile church. So how are you doing at this? I don't say how are we doing, because I don't want us to think about Thornhill as a whole. I want you to think about you. Ask, is the dynamic that I bring to this congregation one of humility? Do I assess how the church is doing based on what I like or whether my needs are being met? Am I gracious or am I critical? Am I encouraging or am I complaining? Do I add life to people in all my interactions with them? Or not? Do I brighten the place or darken it? And then, of course, we ask, and I ask, is there anything I need to change? Our commitment to expressing our unity in love is not, cannot be a half-hearted thing. Listen to how Paul finishes the sentence here. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's some Greek grammar for you. The word eager here is actually an emphatic present participle, which means that it is an urgent, ongoing activity. The New International Version translates it, make every effort. It could, could translate it, always keep on making every effort. Here's what one New Testament guy has said about this word. 
it is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole person is meant, involving will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. It excludes passivity, quietism, and a wait-and-see attitude. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones in verse 3. All in the word eager. In, in sports, we sometimes say that we expect every athlete to bring it to every game. To give yourself 100% every time as if everything is on the line. When it comes to being the church and loving each other and preserving our unity, we bring it every day. Now, historically, we Christians have not, we've had a hard time maintaining our visible unity, but it shouldn't be hard considering the real basis of our real unity. Now, from verse 4, one body and one spirit in fact, there is only one body because there is one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Uh, not too long ago, I, um, I, I lost nearly all of my audio files on my computer. I previously put on every CD that we owned onto our computer, including two versions of the Bible, so like 7,000 audio files. And in the process of trying to move them from one computer to another, I had to delete some stuff in order to create some space. Well, I deleted the majority of my files, over 6,000 of them. And it turns out that the program that I used to manage my audio files apparently had imported my files to two different locations. And so thinking I was protecting my songs over here and deleting stuff over here, there were very few songs over here, and what I deleted ended up being most of my files. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't import us into different locations. One spirit, one body, one church. We share the same hope. We serve the same Lord. There is one faith. And that means either that we've all responded to Christ with the same kind of faith or that there is one core of faith content that marks all Christians like repentance and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. There's one baptism and regardless of how other tra traditions understand how baptism is done, for everyone, it's still a baptism into Christ. And there is one God and Father of all. We have the same Father, which is why we're one family, one people. This is what unites us. How can there possibly be room for disunity? A few years back, this, this joke by Emo Phillips was voted the funniest religious joke at all time. He says, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. 
Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> now, a joke like that only works because it's got some roots in history, in experience, in reality. Now, I'm not saying that there's not room for differences and for denominations. I think that there are, and I think that they have a place. I am a Baptist pastor. My brother is a pastor in a Reformed church. We think differently about some things. And so we are parts of different traditions within the stream of Christianity. But my goodness, we still love and serve the same Lord for the same reasons. We both readily affirm that we are part of the same faith, that we have the same Christ, that we have the same God and Father, that we are part of the same family on the same mission. I mean, I'm glad that there's Lutherans and Presbyterians and Mennonites who bring something to the church. I mean, yeah, there is room for denominations, but there is no room for disunity for conflict, for separation, for animosity and ill will. Prophet Malachi said to the Israelites, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Exactly. God's people then and now need to grow up. Like we tell our kids, love your family. We're a family. Learn to get along. Treat each other with kindness and respect. It's what it means to be in a family. So we, I, you individually, we together, we grow into maturity as we express our unity by love. And we grow into maturity as we express our diversity in active ministry. We grow into maturity as we express our diversity in active ministry. When the Bible emphasizes diversity, it does it in terms of the gifts that we have, the ways that we're able to work and serve and contribute. Right? What else do we try to instill in our kids? That they do their share in the family's home life, right? That they make their contribution. When I was a kid, I had certain things that I just had to do. Make my bed every day when I was little. Then setting the table at supper was my job. And eventually things like doing dishes and cleaning the front hallway and doing the laundry and cutting grass. And by the way, I don't mean doing the dishes like that or doing the laundry like that. I mean your hands in the sink and a wringer washer. Now that some of you know how old I am. But I had to do those things. And it wasn't just about my parents trying to instill character and a good work ethic. No, we did them because we were a family and a home. And if we were going to function then it was assumed that we would all share the responsibilities of the home. And I, I didn't understand it then, but I do now. And the same is true in the church. We all do our share. Not just to keep the church going as a building or an institution for its own sake, but insofar as the church is concerned with Christ and his kingdom, we serve the kingdom by doing our part in the church. So we express our unity by love, and we express our diversity by actively participating in ministry. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice the move from all in verse 6 to each in verse 7. Each of us has been graciously given a gift by Jesus Christ. And then verse 8 quotes Psalm 68, a text about the glorious triumph of God as he battles on behalf of his people. 
In verses 9 and 10, take that quote and link it to Jesus' victorious ascension and exaltation and the giving of gifts, then, is Jesus giving so-called charism or gifts of grace to his people. And other scriptures talk about these gifts, call them spiritual gifts. Some gifts are abilities given to people. Here in Ephesians, the gifts are people who perform certain roles, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd or pastor teachers. These people are Christ's gift to the church, given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Last week's passage, remember, also linked our unity to the knowledge of Christ. Remember that? That together with all the saints to know the love of Christ. To attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we all attain, that implies that we're not there yet. So unity is both maintained, verse 3, and attained. Uh, in two weeks, I get to perform the wedding of Anna and Jordan. In marriage, two people become one. And that unity is to be maintained. But over the years in a healthy marriage, this unity becomes fuller, the relationship deeper, closer. And the marriage, in a sense, is a process of attaining oneness, growing into the fullness of oneness. Like the church, we are one. Let's grow into unity. And notice the progression here. Verse 11, Christ gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers to the church. Verse 12, he gives them in order that the saints might be equipped for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, God gives these gifts to the church for the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry, until, verse 13, we attain to unity and maturity, to the stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ. In verse 14, then, if we are mature in Christ, by definition, if we're mature, we're no longer children. Impressionable, swayed by whoever tells us whatever. But we'll be rooted in the truth. In verse 15, because we will be rooted in truth, we're able to live in truth with each other. Now, most translations say speaking the truth in love. But the word speaking is not in the original. And so it can, it can be more accurately, but more awkwardly translated, truthing in love to each other. And it certainly does include speaking the truth in love. And when we speak, we need both truth and love. Truth without love is a club. It's like saying, you're ugly. Love without truth is just nice. It's shallow. It doesn't talk about real things. It never challenges us to real growth. Some years back, uh, one of our Sunday school teachers taught her class, and I remember this well, taught her class three questions to ask before speaking. First, ask, is it true? If not, don't say it. If it is true, then ask, is my saying this helpful to this person? If not, don't say it. Have you ever defended yourself after saying something by saying, well, it's true, well, maybe so, but just because something is true doesn't mean it's right to say it. Is it true? Is it helpful? And thirdly, 
I'm motivated by love in saying this. It might be true. It might be of benefit to the listener, but if I can't say it in love, maybe I shouldn't say it. In the middle of an argument, a husband says to his wife, you know, people get annoyed when you always talk about yourself. Is it true? Yes. Is it something the wife should know? Probably. Is he saying it in love? No. No, he's trying to wound. So don't say it. But truthing in love is more than just speaking in love. It's living in truth. It's living openly, authentically. No lies, no masks, no hiding. And yes, speaking the truth in love at all times. And as we do that, we grow up into Christ, who is the head of the body. He is the leader of the body. He is the one who causes us to function as a body. In verse 16, then Christ holds us together. Now notice how Paul closes this thought. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So verses 7 to 16, God gives, Christ gives grace to each one in the church and he gives to the whole church certain leaders to equip the saints, each follower of Jesus. And with that equipping, each, everyone then does his or her part working together and thus the church is built up. It grows up into Christ. It attains full unity, full maturity. See how that works? It's just like a family. So we tell our kids, love your family and do your share. And it's the same in the family of which God is the Father. We have a part to play. There is a share that we have been given, and each of us is to do our share. It's not duty in the sense of chore, like being assigned to the latrines in the army, but it is duty in the sense that we each have a responsibility, even an obligation, to the rest of the church and to Jesus. And obligation and responsibility are becoming bad words, and certainly bad words in the church, but they don't need to be bad words. My obligation to wash dishes and weed the vegetable garden contributed to the life and health of my family. My obligation to keep the car functioning and the obligation of my wife to change diapers, and yeah, that was my obligation too, <laughs> contributes to the life and health of the family. It's just how it works. Do you want to mature as a Christian? Do you want to grow up in Jesus? And do you want the church, this church, to be healthy and strong and mature? Then it's very simple. Love each other and do your share. We express our unity by love. We express our diversity by participating in active ministry. So the bottom line is that before we leave here, we ask ourselves two sets of questions. First, concerning the expression of our unity by love. Same questions I asked earlier. Is the dynamic that I bring to this congregation one of humility? Do I assess how the church is doing based on what I like or whether my needs are being met? Am I gracious or critical? Am I encouraging or complaining? Do I add life to people in my interactions with them or not? Do I brighten the place or do I darken it? And then, of course, is there anything that I need to change? If you have concerns about the church, ask, well, what can I do to be a part of the solution? 
How can I help this church to be a loving and a welcoming place? How can I contribute to a general atmosphere of encouragement and of grace and of affirmation? These all belong to the first set of questions. The second set has to do with expression of our diversity by, by participating in active ministry. And here, the starting question is, am I participating actively in the life of the church? Not just attending here on Sunday, but actively participating. And I have no problem emphasizing this fact because the text does. The text tells us that the body can only grow into maturity as every part does its work. And this assumes that there is a part for everyone. And that unless every part actually does its work, that the church cannot mature. So we ask, am I doing my part? Then we ask, well, what is my part? And I can't answer that for you, except by asking more questions. What are you good at? What do you love doing? What is the gap in the church that you see as most pressing? What are people inviting you to be a part of? And of course, are you praying about what you should do? What do you think God is showing you about that? So again, do you want to mature as a Christian? Do you want to grow in Jesus? And do you want the church, this church, to be healthy and strong and mature? I suspect that most of you do. And if so, we will, you and I both, we will express our unity by love, in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other in love. And we will express our diversity by each of us intentionally and actively participating in the ministry of the church. And this text today is hand in hand with our text from last week. Because it is all the work of God. Oh, Lord. Strengthen us with your power so that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. So that being rooted with all the saints together, bound together, we'll be able to know and experience this love of Christ. So that we might be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. Lord, this is something you have to do. And we cannot look at chapter 4 without knowing chapter 3. Because if we do, then it's all about me coming and saying, okay, smarten up, get busy, do the work, roll up your sleeves. That's not what it's about. It's not a guilt thing. This is the expression, this is the working out of God's gracious calling to us in Christ. And he empowers us. He calls us, but he empowers us to do it. Why? Because he wants us to be filled with the measure of all of his fullness. And in that context, then we can safely say, okay, what do I do? How do I need to be? How do I need to love? How do I need to serve? How can we be a body building itself up in love to maturity? We're going to move now into a time of prayer. And, uh, and I'm, just, I'm going to lead this time. And what I'm going to do is just kind of pray and pause and allow you to pray. It's one thing for me to say, okay, let's ask ourselves all of these questions. Need to give time to hear the answer. And, uh, and prayer is as much, if not more so, listening as it is speaking. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll be quiet. And you can ask God these questions. 
And, uh, and we will commit to respond to these questions for the sake of the glory of God in the life of the church. So let us pray.